Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. Today is Tuesday, October 1st, and we're discussing Michaels. I'm your host, Nick Seipel, and today I'm joined by Molly Fool contributor Asit Sharma via Skype. How's it going, Asit? Pretty good. How are you doing, Nick? I'm doing all right. It's good to have you back in the studio. We're talking about Michaels today. If folks aren't familiar with that company, one of the largest crafts and specialty retailers in the country. Asit, do you do any crafting in your free time? So I do crafting of the nature uh, when something breaks. I become a crafter for a day. So if I'm moving a frame, a picture frame at home and drop it, I'm a crafter for that day because I'm going to find my way to a Joann's Fabric or Michael's or similar store and look for a frame. How about you, Nick? Yeah, I'm 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 about in the same boat. Much more of a uh, you know running to Home Depot to do that that sort of crafting. Uh, my girlfriend, however, does do that pretty regular. Has her Cricut machine, has her uh, Etsy store. Happy Go Lacy gifts promo. If anybody wants to get uh, some crafts on Etsy, but uh, but we're going to talk about Michaels today. And I think the context we're going to talk about them is this is one of those companies that if if you look at the numbers, it really looks like it could be a value stock. However, we're going to walk through some concerns that could make it a value trap. But before we dive into that, let's just give some brief history of the company and kind of where where it's come from in the past recent years. Can you kind of walk us through? Uh, Michael's history as a public company and where it sits today? Sure. So, Michael's was founded in 1974 by a businessman named Michael Dupie in Dallas, Texas. Um, this company began trading on the NASDAQ actually in 1984 um, as the Michael's companies, but it was taken private by private equity firms Bain Capital and Blackstone Group. Those are two pretty familiar names if you are familiar at all with the private equity world. Uh, that was in 2006 for a price tag of six billion bucks. Um, the company was reintroduced to the private mark, uh, public markets in June of 2014. They raised 472 million dollars in that offering. Most of the proceeds were allocated to pay down the company's oversight debt load. At that time, it was 3.7 billion dollars, and debt load is going to be a recurring uh, theme today. Bain still owns 34 percent of the outstanding. Uh, stock in this company. Blackstone still has a 13% stake. I want to note before we move forward, uh, in this second go-round in the public markets, what has their stock performance looked like, up or down? Now, listeners, I'll take a millisecond for you to guess. The answer is shares are down about 42% cumulatively, but we will get into the whys of that in just a moment. Yeah, that's that's why folks uh, folks might be viewing this company as a value stock. And just just for a little bit more context, Michael is the largest crafts and specialty retailer in North America, based on store count. Has one thousand two hundred sixty two stores in the U.S. and Canada. Uh, they, they define their market when we talked about you know whether whether we craft. Over fifty three percent of U.S. households participated in at least one crafting project during two thousand and eighteen. So really a, a robust uh, market there. But so when you when you look at some of the numbers here here on this on this company, uh, it really can pop out on some on some traditional value metrics. So if you look at their forward priced earnings, it's about four. Uh, their gross margin is higher than what you would expect uh, from the typical store store based retailer. But the big number that that really popped out to me and why I wanted to talk about this company today is looking at their free cash flow. So if you look at their free cash flow from last year, they had about three hundred million in free cash flow. And so, if you if you take that number and divide it by and divide it by their market cap, which currently is 1.5 billion, that gives you a free cash flow yield of about 20 percent, which is extremely strong uh, relative relative to to the broader market. And 
when you look at investing in a company, you can generally get a decent picture of what you can expect your returns to be over time by looking at that free cash flow yield and then adding in what your expected growth in free cash flow is over time. As we've talked about with Michaels, it's in a market that's probably mature, and so you can't expect free cash flow to grow in a really significant way over time. But the question of whether this stock is a value will be whether they can keep the market clearly at the position that it's valued today is expecting that free cash flow yield to decline over time. But however, if we can identify some trends that will say that that will be stable over time, there's a real chance that this stock is overvalued. So, Asad, you've had a chance to look through some of these free cash flow numbers and those types of stats coming out of Michael's. What has popped out of you, uh, popped out to you about this company when you just take a high-level look? I love the margins, uh, gross margin of 35%. Uh, free cash flow, again, as you stated, that pops out at me. And for listeners, for those of you who are unfamiliar with this term, free cash flow is operating cash flow, the cash the company generates from its operations, minus the um, physical uh, assets that it buys during the year or any small acquisitions. So you subtract basically equipment, fixed asset purchases from this operating cash, you get free cash flow. And after that, whatever money is left over to uh, pay uh, your debt service, to maybe pay investors in the form of a, a dividend or reinvest further in the, the business, um, that's all gravy. So the company has this high free cash flow yield that popped out as me uh, at me as well. I like the stability of the sales given this really bad uh, retail environment. Comparable sales this year in fiscal 2019 are expected to be flat versus the prior year. That means that average store uh, in the company's store base isn't really going to increase sales at all. But compared to many physical store-based retailers, uh, we listeners, you just heard the news probably a couple of days ago, Forever 21 is the latest retailer to declare bankruptcy, I'll take flat comps. I don't think that's uh, such a bad number. It shows that at least the sales um, are stable and can be improved. So that also jumps out at me. Net margins, uh, you know, they average in the low to mid single digits. And that, again, is pretty decent for a retailer in this day and age. Um, now, some of the stuff that's not so appealing is that debt on the balance sheet. Um, before we talk about the debt, though, I do want to point out, if we looked at the asset side of this company, if it's a stable company with uh, very stable operating cash flows, you'd expect over time, if they're, if they're rising even slightly, that is the cash flows, the company would be building up a big cash balance. But like many retailers, Michael's has most of its assets in its inventory. So it's got these 1,200-odd stores that Nick told you about. It constantly has to buy inventory. So it has this balance between payables to its um, vendors, cash that it needs to you know, pay down its accounts payable, and this big inventory balance. So the inventory as of the last quarter was $1.25 billion. Um, I'll return to that number in uh, just a bit during uh, this segment. Now, debt. Debt's at $2.7 billion. And Nick, you and I were crunching what this means, and we, we talked earlier today. Uh, Versus its equity, you really can't get a read because Michaels has negative equity. It's got a shareholder's deficit. And this is from losses that it, it sustained years and years ago. So over the course of decades, it's actually built a shareholder's deficit. So for those of you listeners who like to hear, well, what's the debt to equity? We really can't give you that number. We can say that um, the company is able to cover its interest obligations, its times interest earned ratio is roughly four 
That means that uh, net earnings cover the interest burden about four times over during a year. That's sort of thin, but um, on the other hand, I've seen worse. Final note about the debt. Um, if you look at a very uh, widely used metric, which is debt to EBITDA, that is debt to earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization, that ratio sits at around three and a half times. It's a number, another number that we crunched just before uh, taping today. And that's actually moderate leverage, although relative to its own balance sheet, it's got a big debt load that needs to be addressed. Um, if you look at what this means in the big picture, the leverage is moderate. It's acceptable. It's a problem that can be solved. One of the questions that we'll toss back and forth is, does the company want to solve this debt problem? What jumped out at you, Nick, about the balance sheet? Yeah, so so taking a look at the balance sheet, as you said, that high high leverage number uh, obviously pops out to me. You expect to see that from a company that has been brought public in recent years by private equity, um, but uh, that to the extent that we should be concerned about the debt, it kind of comes back to that that free cash flow number that we talked about before. Is whether that at the current amount of cash that the company is is turning out, you know, we shouldn't be too concerned about their ability to at least. Sustain, uh, uh, sustain their interest payments on the debt and that sort of thing. But the but where it does become a concern is if we see the business continue to deteriorate over time and we see that cash flow begin to drop. And that's where I think we should talk a little bit about some of the tactics and strategies the company is using to try to stabilize the business and maybe get to some growth over time. So just this year so far. Sales are down about 4% through two quarters. However, we see net profit up due to some tighter SGNA, SGNA control and a little bit less restructuring costs. We've also seen new management come in place this year, uh, which is kind of strange circumstances. The current uh, the, the CEO who had been in place up to February of this year, Chuck Rubin, resigned somewhat abruptly, had mutually agreed with the company to step down, had been in the position since 2015. However, uh, Mr. Rubin has been replaced, at least on an interim basis, by board member Mark Cosby, who has a 30 years of retail experience at Office Depot and other retailers. And he has put in place some tactical and strategic initiatives to try to stabilize the company and possibly return to growth. Can you kind of give us an overview of what management is trying to do and Maybe your thoughts on, on whether that can sustain its current performance, at least going forward. So, Mark Cosby is a retail veteran. He's had about 30 years of experience in the industry, and he's put a fresh set of eyes on the company. One of the things that uh, Cosby has done with the management team is to eliminate the company's everyday value program. Of course, Walmart is the company that popularized the notion of everyday value. That means you walk into the store, you're not looking for big signs that say, you know, huge sale or red tag sale. Everything on the shelves should be at a lower price than you'd find elsewhere. This is a tricky uh, initiative for a company which has traditionally brought in its customers through a lot of uh, discounting and coupon offers and specials. So customers actually perceived a little bit loss of value when uh, this everyday value program was put forward because they stopped seeing as much of their promotions. It backfired and uh, Cosby went in and, and said, look, let's just can this program for now and go back to what was working in terms of our regular promotional cycle. Um, he's also moved higher price point items away from the front of the store. Now, that seems like a very basic uh, 
thing to implement, but it's one of these things which simple is genius. And when you walk into a Michael's store and you're one of these core customers, uh, a craft, or as, as they like to term it, a maker, um, and their definition of maker is a little bit more narrow maybe than some of ours. So we're not talking about Arduino circuit boards and, and robotics instruments. We're talking about craft makers who do uh, pasteboarding, who do um, scrapbooking, things of that nature. But he decided that this emphasis on trying to sell higher ticket items, which existed just before he came on board, was actually turning customers away. So they've moved those higher price items back to the back of the store. And they put more emphasis on the end caps uh, to put the items that core crafters want on these end of aisle um, end caps. And they've also uh, mined their customer database. One of the things which has been extremely successful for companies with a Ford tech focus is targeted offers to loyal customers. And Michaels is getting into this game. They've really only scratched the surface on their capability. They've got such a uh, you know, fanatic cadre of customers who come there you know, on a weekly basis, and they've got a ton of data, which if utilized properly, is going to lead to a higher lifetime value for customers. So I like that. Um, last thing that I'll say uh, about the tactical things they're doing is this emphasis on private label, label brands. In this industry in general, um, Nick, as you pointed out to me earlier, there's not a lot of huge name brands. But uh, Michael's tactically is really doubling down on its private label brands because those have a higher profit margin than stuff it merely resells. That focus on private label also colors the extent to which they could possibly be disrupted or gone after by, by third-party companies. When you know most of these these brands are undifferentiated or, or just kind of you know basic uh, principles, so a, a, you know a painting, a paintbrush, or something like that. It, it's hard for a lot of these things to, to get moved online. I guess on on the other side of that, you could say, hey, these are these are products that the folks really don't care that much. You know whether they get brand X or brand Y, uh, but it allows Michaels to, to have a higher margin, more control of its inventory, um, that that sort of thing. Focusing on its core customer obviously obviously makes sense. You want to control uh, uh, those high value customers and have them coming to Michaels versus coming to other places. On the on the everyday value issue, this is this is an issue that even other retailers have seen. I was reading about Bed Bath and Beyond tried to push into this, this sort of issue and also had a revolt from its customers because hey, when you have people that have been extreme couponing and have gotten used to to that behavior as part of their shopping habits, uh, when you take that sort of thing away, it can actually backfire on you, which it's surprising. You would think lowering prices across the board might might bring folks in, but it, it's one of those things that, that can be counterintuitive. But I like the push from the company, uh, and to my eyes, I, you know, I, I can see how this could at least bring stability to the company and keep those cash flows stable over time, which would color the, the, the narrative that this company could be a potentially attractive value. However, as we've touched on a little bit on this front of the show. There are a couple or a few red flags that you might say this company, maybe pink flags, that you might could say that this company has some value trap characteristics to it. We've talked about its high leverage, uh, but one issue we haven't dived into deeply is, is that major private equity shareholding. Um, first off, Asset, when you see a company that has you know nearly half of its stock held by private equity holders, what are the first things that come to your mind? That What are those those light bulbs that go off that you should start looking at when you see a company like this? The first light bulbs that go off in my mind are, why does this company have a partial float of shares that's public? 
And maybe I'm a cynic, maybe I'm a cynic, but often that can mean that the private equity company has uh, really looked for a way to get its share. Um, it's made an investment in a struggling company. Um, most of the time it's encumbered the balance sheet, so it'll take control of a private company, leverage it to the hilt, um, and then gradually seek ways to get their returns, which can mean selling off divisions. Um, it can mean really doing an IPO uh, for a certain portion of the shares. Um, and then once part of the company is traded publicly, to continue to exert this control over management to sort of call the shots in a fashion manner that benefits the private equity company. And this is not anything uh, illegal. It's often spelled right out in those IPO documents as a risk that we you know, still will retain as major shareholders XYZ private equity company. And we you know, owe them through all these side arrangements, related party transactions. So I have a yeah, set of antennae that just shoot up when I hear that a company which is controlled by private equity is going to offer some shares to the public. Now, that doesn't mean that it can't benefit both the public and the private holders, but you got to do your homework in cases like this. Exactly. And, and Michael's, as you mentioned, is no different. They disclose in their 10K uh, that Bain Capital and Blackstone own approximately 46% of the stock outstanding. And quote, they will be able to strongly influence or effectively control our decisions, and their interests may conflict with yours, the individual shareholder, and that of the company. We talked earlier about the, the heavy debt burden of Michaels and about its free cash flow. Given its high, its high debt burden, we had discussed before the show that you know if I were managing capital for this business, uh, a lot of the concern, uh, the pressure on the valuation that is hurting their net income has been the cost that it takes to service this debt, to pay that interest over time. Uh, so you would, it would seem to be prudent to take some of that free cash flow and pumping it into paying down debt. However, when you look at the capital allocation decisions of the company in recent years, they have been buying back 200 to 300 million dollars in stock over that time. As we've mentioned, the stock has declined markedly over that period of time, noting that those buybacks maybe weren't the best investment. Uh, when you see the company pushing funds towards buybacks, when we think maybe it would be more prudent to use that towards debt service, does that contribute to those little feelings with antennas being up about, hey, maybe the private equity folks are helping push uh, you know, the company to buy shares back from them? Yeah, a little bit, because you know, that obviously uh, reduced float out in the marketplace theoretically uh, will, at some point in time, increase the value of those shares as they get scarce. But for that to happen, there's got to be demand. But on the flip side of the coin, so many companies buy back their shares uh, you know, in the hope that that helps prop the share price up. And you will see various corporations get into a rut of allocating a lot of cash because their stock keeps declining year after year, and they watch successful companies buy back shares. Um, so it becomes sort of this self-fulfilling prophecy where uh, you're using precious capital that maybe should be invested back into the company to buy back shares um, it's not helping the stock price, and then poor financial results because of lack of investment cause the stock to you know depreciate further, and so you feel more inclined to try to pump the share price up by buying back shares. So I'm positing it could potentially equally be just a miscue by management, but sure, there's the suspicion that 
uh, the, the private equity hands are, you know, really directing the company to let's reduce that float because, again, that theoretically increases their percentage of ownership uh, over time. And there have been companies that have cycled, you know, both public and private. Uh, Dell is a great example of a company that's gone through public, private, public iterations. Um, so I, I'm not ascribing any motive uh, to either of these companies that they want to, again, uh, take this private. However, you have to wonder at the logic of a, a sort of struggling company, which is not using every last penny to try to reinvest in the business. But we'll, you know, we'll talk about that uh, as we discuss whether this is a value trap or not. Yeah. So, so on the topic of debt as well, another kind of of pink flag in the most recent quarter. Michael's rolled some of its debt. It had some notes coming due. Uh, I believe it was this year, and have rolled that that debt out uh, to 2027. When you talk about about their leverage, when they rolled that debt, I, I think it had been uh, the interest rate on that debt had been three, four, five percent. When they've rolled that debt, uh, they now got a rate at around eight and a half percent, maybe higher than that for these new notes. What, given that 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 high interest rate, does that concern you in today's environment? Uh, getting a rate at that high of a of a of a interest rate, particularly with with free cash flow as strong as it appears to be with this company, what are what are the bankers seeing that we're not seeing in this case, Asset? So bankers tend to evaluate uh, companies uh, in a few different ways. They they do what's called spreading the financials, and all that means is they throw the numbers up on an Excel spreadsheet. They pay attention to how the numbers look on a strictly gap earnings basis, and they compare that to ultimately to cash flows. The cash flows look okay, as we've discussed, but when you flip over to this sort of um, look from generally accepted accounting principles or gap, it doesn't look as great. The interest coverage, like how many times does this cash flow cover interest expense, as I noted before, is sort of meager, and that scares the bankers. Um, so they, it's, it's a, it's a less creditworthy profile that Michaels is presenting on a gap basis uh, to the lending public. And that's why these notes, which um, blend what you're talking about, and I think this latest refinancing, but uh, let's just round here. They had $500 million in senior notes that were at a previous interest rate, just under 6%, so already a high interest rate. And that was refinanced at 8%. And that's going to cost them an additional $10.6 million in interest a year. And roughly, uh, without getting into too fine of numbers here, about 25% of operating income is being swallowed up by interest expense every quarter. And you know that's something that when the bank turns its ratios um, and decides how much risk it can take, it just doesn't look so great. Now, that's not to say that um, the lending public doesn't believe in Michaels. It has an asset-based lending facility on its inventory and accounts receivable that uh, will allow it to borrow, you know, six to seven hundred million dollars when it needs to, and it periodically taps into that and pays that back during the year, oftentimes uh, before the holiday season when it's ramping up inventory. So it does have sources access to capital, but it's got to concern, you know, shareholders a little bit. How come this debt is just staying on the books? And again, we're talking about decades. Wouldn't it be a good idea to try to pay some of this down rather than buying uh, back stock? And I think, Nick, this is something that you and I uh, you know, both agree on. The company has some methods by which it can reduce um, this debt burden. I'm going to go ahead and, and, and spell out one of them. 
why not close some underperforming stores? We've seen over the past few years so many chains which are in deep trouble. Uh, let's say, let's see, JCPenney, um, Sears, I uh, mentioned Forever 21, which actually didn't quite make it, but the practice is to start closing underperforming stores when you're in serious trouble. Now, Michaels is not in serious trouble. They're pretty stable. They run a profit every year, but they just need to, to reduce this leverage somewhat. And I think it would be a good trimming exercise for the company to do this. I'll give you one example of a company that successfully went through this. And this is Dine Global Brands, which owns both IHOP and the Applebee's franchise. And a couple of years ago, Dine Brands decided enough was enough. And they closed a good portion uh, in the high teens percentage of that company's store base. And that really had the effect of improving cash flow. It improved comparable sales because the bad performing stores were taken out of that comparable sales base. Um, I think this would be a great exercise to free up cash flow, to remove some of the drag on net income from underperforming stores. Um, the reason the company probably hasn't done it is because it's not in enough trouble and it's always hard to make that move until the very last minute. But Nick, what about you? Do you, do you see that this uh, is you know, possibly just a big hurdle for someone who sees the company as a value play, this, this whole debt burden? Yeah, it, it's tough because given, given it, the free cash flow yield and what it looks like from a value perspective, I think buying back stock doesn't look just manifestly like a bad strategy. However, the market has not rewarded that behavior over time. So for management, uh, if I were management and I was in this position, I think I would want to try a different approach. As you had mentioned, it's been a significant drag on their net income, uh, their their debt service. And this is debt that they've been carry, being carrying for a, long, a large number of years. Uh, the fact that they're generating what appear to be stable results uh, is not being rewarded by their lenders. They're having to pay higher rates. So I, I think at this point in time, the prudent move from, from my perspective would be to adopt a different strategy, try to pay down that debt load. Clearly, what appears to be the concern of the market at this time is that they have such a high debt load you know, burdening the company. Uh, to, to kind of take some of those concerns away from the market would seem to be the the appropriate approach. You know, however, management hasn't done that to date. We have noted that there is a new uh, new interim CEO in place. Perhaps that is that is the the step to make. Again, to your point on, on closing stores, you know, it's not urgent to do that at, at this time. But you know, <laughs> your strategy that you've been trying so far clearly has not been rewarded by the market. So what could it hurt at this point? Is kind of kind of my perspective on it. Um, Another place when it talks about, um, you know, you have to wait until things are really bad before you really have some leverage is lease rates. So management is expecting about a 2% inflation in lease rates going forward. There have been some short sellers that are critical of Michael's that have said, hey, why are their lease rates going up 2% a year? When you look at some other retailers, I think Best Buy is an example that's been called out, that have been able to negotiate their lease rates down. Some, you know, Looking at that, any kind of high level, high level thoughts on that uh, of, you know, why are their lease rates going up when it seems to be that for a lot of major retailers they have some leverage to push on their landlords to kind of get those lease rates down. Well, one one thing that you know, investors should really zero in on here is they are a victim of their own success, and success is relative. So in this retail industry, where Amazon and a bunch of other companies who've 
dived into e-commerce have disrupted what it means to go shopping physically in a store. In this kind of landscape, it's really, really difficult to just you know break even or to show some slow growth. But that's what Michaels has done. And renegotiation of, of lease rates, it's always a, a dance between a tenant and a landlord. Most of these, the time, these uh, triple net type leases where the tenant is paying most of the operating expenses of the lease, you know, paying for insurance and taxes, maintenance of common areas, those get renegotiated, you know, sometimes at five and, and 10 year um, tranches, but they have built in annual clauses. So when a landlord is able to make the argument that, you know, you're doing all right, you're making enough money to pay me 2% a year, it's more difficult for the retailer to have negotiating power. The thing about a, a Best Buy or, or some of these other companies that we've talked about is at one time or another, they've been in serious trouble. And I tell you, when you can when you can look the landlord in the eye and say, hey, if you don't help me out on this lease rate, I might not be here next year to pay you on a monthly basis. You have some leverage there that a company which is even marginally successful just doesn't have. And it's an accepted practice in the real estate industry, in the commercial real estate industry, to have a lease rate bump up 1% to 2% a year. And so here, in my opinion, I, I hear what the short sellers are saying, but they're really comparing apples and oranges. Michaels is a victim of its relative success on this front. Yeah, and then one last criticism uh, that you know short sellers have leveled against the company uh, that we'll talk about before we kind of reach our final conclusions um, is on framing. So Michaels is one of the largest framers uh, in the U.S. So I'm talking about picture frames, those sorts of things, custom framing. Uh, they, they're the owner of Aaron Brothers. They've recently closed most of the Aaron Brothers stores and have brought those inside uh, Michaels stores as a store within a store concept. It's about 16% of their revenue, but it's significantly higher margin than their core craft supplies business. There have been some concerns that online disruptors, FrameBridge is one example, have are, are going to be able to chip away at some of Michael's market share in that space. And if that takes place, then some of their high margin business in this framing uh, area may be chipped away, and that is a major driver of their free cash flow. How do you handicap this risk uh, for the company asset? I mean, it, it's really hard to tell, but uh, what, are, what are your thoughts there? It's a risk, but we also have to look at some of the benefits the company gets by moving its framing in-house. So one thing that uh, in the retail industry is very important metric is what is the sales per square foot of a particular location? So what the company is doing is reducing the overhead that it's got in the separately positioned framing stores, getting rid of all that uh, operating expense, lease expense, bringing it in-house. So that does two things. It reduces the economic drag, um, and it also increases the uh, profitability productivity of each store that receives an in-house framing unit. What else does that unit do? It brings in additional traffic within uh, Michael's location Sometimes those are two separate customers. And we seem to we, we we tend to think of a customer who's going to a isolated framing unit and a customer who's going to uh, a Michaels as the same person because those results and the financials get you know rolled up into to one bucket. However, someone who just goes with a framing need to a separately identified store may not be a loyal Michaels customer. Now, if they have to go through the Michaels store past the end caps, past the maker spaces, which the company is really trying to ramp up and make their stores more experiential, it has a chance to 
upsell while that customer is there for a framing need. And it also has a chance to make this new customer into a longer term customer. So I think that there's some real benefit here. Again, the short sellers have correctly identified a risk, but maybe haven't looked at some of the benefit that's that's coming. So I'm not, frankly, as worried about that. And I'll note that competitors like Joanne uh, Fabric do pretty well by having you know some framing facility, although much smaller, located in a strategically placed area of the store, which brings people in and they have to sort of walk through. It's, it's like the Ikea concept. You've got to sort of wend your way through to the framing area. And by that time, you've inevitably picked up a couple of small items. Yeah, it's like putting the, putting the milk in the back of the store, right? Every, everybody is, you're going in to get that sort of thing. Exactly. You have to walk by all the exactly. other items uh, to get there. Uh, Asset, so so we've kind of walked through the whole story of Michael's. When you when you look at their free cash flow and some of their operating metrics, there, there appears to be a decent amount to like there relative to its current valuation. However, when you look at its high private equity holdings, when you look at its its debt, its amount of leverage, which is partially due to that that high private equity relationship, there there are some risks there. So when you take a look at all that together, do you think this company is a value? Stock or a value trap? I'm intrigued by this company. Um, you know, I I believe it's a value play. I believe it's a value stock, but one that you um, maybe want to just take some baby steps into or put on a watch list. And I'll tell you why. So value to me is finding a quantitatively cheap asset that the market recognizes as fairly valued. In other words, the market sees a, a low stock price associated with certain companies says that's that's fair because this company ain't going nowhere it's got x number of problems but you the investor sees that as quantitatively cheap you're like look this is a profitable company um it should be valued more than it is so it's cheap and i'm gonna buy it um now i will say having tried this route before of investing in value stocks you know, your idea of what's value is sort of inversely proportional to, to the pain you'll experience the longer it takes for the market to recognize what you see. However, um, there are some things here that Michael's fairly or unfairly is also being pelted by. One of those is it's in a tough industry right now. So the reason it's got that very low Ford PE ratio that Nick mentioned at the beginning of the show is because it's part of you know, a group of stocks which has just been decimated by online shopping. Michael's presents the customer with a reason to come in store. It's more specialized. Um, it has a specialized product. It has loyal customers. So it's a little bit better insulated than a generic company like a Kmart, you know, or, or parent company Sears or, or JCPenney's. Again, all examples of, of companies that really could not cross that bridge. So it's got a discount that the market is applying, even though it's profitable. It has the high debt load, um, and it does have the pri private equity ownership. But you know, on the other hand, it's got a pretty uh, savvy interim CEO. If you're listening, Michael's management, I think you should make Mr. Cosby the permanent CEO, because what he's doing is trying to get rid of customers like me and Nick. Uh, the strategic thrust of the company is to not worry about the one or two timers every year, but to embrace that core customer and have experiences in the store, partner with uh, with um, companies that make the scrapbooks uh, and have like, almost like, uh, you know, mini demonstrations in store, kind of the thing you see in a Home Depot or Lowe's, the, this the idea of classes, which bring a sense of community. Um, 
it's got some very intriguing positives about it. If the company could reduce its debt load, again, uh, not offering direct advice to management, but why not consider getting rid of some of the underperforming stores, boost that cash flow, boost net income, pay down some debt. Uh, I see that this stock could really rise once the market recognizes that it deserves a higher multiple. It's worth more than uh, most people are willing to pay. So I am going to err on the side of this is a value play. And I am immensely curious, Nick, what, is, what are your thoughts? Is this a trap or is this a value stock in your opinion? Uh, from my perspective, I-, I tend to see this as a value stock as well. I think qualitatively, as you mentioned, it's one of these retailers that you can tell a story of why they should still exist despite the onset of e-commerce. When you go to buy a craft good, uh, you know, seeing that thing in front of you, seeing what color that paint is or what texture that uh, canvas is or that sort of thing is something that just can't be replicated online. And so there's a reason to come into the store. You know their performance, as we as we mentioned, their their free cash flow is strong, and because of those qualitative characteristics I just described, I expect that that should be able to be maintained over time. However, the leverage is a concern to me, and the private equity interest does raise a little bit of a concern. There could be a conflict between the major holders and an individual shareholder. To your point. I, I think I would be reticent to buy the stock until they have a permanent management team in place so that I can know that the strategy that they're taking today is something that is going to carry through over the next several years. So, for my stance today, I think it's a stock that you put on your watch list, you you follow whatever the final management team's strategy is, and check off that they are able to see some traction from those sorts of things. And then I, I think you know it's a stock that you know you just have to buy and hold and wait wait for the market to realize that value. I think when you're buying value stocks, you have to be comfortable to look a little dumb for a while uh, when you buy these things. And I think this stock is no different. Um, Asit, thanks as always for coming on the podcast, and I will look forward to having you on again soon. It was a pleasure. Look forward to it next time. Yep. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against the stocks discussed, so don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Austin Morgan for his work behind the glass. For Asit Sharma, I'm Nick Seipel. Thanks for listening, and Fool on! Thank you.